looking through the past lessons, and this is our ninth lesson in Matthew, it's hard to believe. But today we come to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is uh, the first extended teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples. And you can see it starts in chapter 5 and verse 1, and it says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up to a mountain, and then in verse 2 says, He began to teach them. Now, this Sermon on the Mount goes from chapter 5, verse 1, through chapter 7. And notice how chapter 8 opens. Chapter 8 opens in verse 1. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. So he's up on the mountain in chapters 5, 6, and 7, and he's giving what we call the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount includes kingdom ethics, how we are to live as kingdom citizens by the power of the Spirit, by the power of God's Spirit, uh, and how we're to live in a world that's hostile to Christ. This world's not real friendly to Christ. And even in America, things are not real friendly toward the church. We saw just recently how uh, the president uh, put in a, a health care uh, rule that's tried to uh, undermine the Catholic church regarding their beliefs uh, in reproduction, things like that. And he had to back down on Friday or yesterday. And so this world really is not uh, a friend to the Christian cause. So how do you live in a world that's hostile to Christ? What are the kingdom ethics? Now, this sermon opens with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes do not consist of the entire sermon, but the sermon opens with the Beatitudes. It's like a forward or a preface to the sermon. It's like the introduction to the sermon. And what he's going to do is sort of summarize some of these kingdom principles. Now, there are Eight Beatitudes, okay? And that's how we're going to count them. And I'm just going to read them to you very quickly. They're the ones that are in, in red. And it says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now we're going to go down and we're going to look at verses 11 and 12 as well, but they do not actually constitute more beatitudes. Okay? It's more of an amplification. Now I want you to notice a couple things about these beatitudes. First of all, in the original language, the Greek language, there is no verb in these Beatitudes. The word are, notice the word are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. See the word are there? That's in italics. That means it's not in the original text. And so there's no verb here. And so if you were really going to read it literally, it would read something like this. Oh, the blessedness of. For example, oh, the blessedness of the poor in spirit. Oh, the blessedness of uh, those who mourn. See? 
Oh, the joy of those who, whatever. Oh, the sheer happiness of those who are merciful. No verb there, okay? What this amounts to is an exclamation. They, the writer, or Jesus, is making an exclamation. Oh, the blessedness of the pure in heart, okay? He's just making a statement. In other words, this isn't a hope. It's not describing what you must do in order to be blessed. You got that? It's not describing what you must do in order to be blessed. It's describing a person who's blessed already. Okay? And it's an exclamation of that fact. So this is a person who's already blessed. Then each one of the Beatitudes gives a reason why they are blessed. And that each Beatitude is followed by the word for. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Verse 4. For they shall be comforted. Verse 5, for they shall inherit the earth. Each one has the word for which gives the reason. So let's quickly go through the Beatitudes. They're supposed to be read quickly. Uh, some people preach one Beatitude a week. That's not how Jesus gave it, was it? He'd say, well, I'm sitting on the mountain. Let me give you one Beatitude now. And then come back next week, next Saturday, and I'll give you another one. He didn't do it that way. He said these quickly, and guess what? That's how they are to be read. Now, because we're separated from the Bible by 2,000 years, we need to understand what the words mean. What does it mean? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, the people there understood what it meant. They spoke the Greek language. They spoke Aramaic language. But guess what? We don't. So what does it mean when it says, blessed are the poor in spirit? And therefore, I have to explain it. And since I don't know what it means, I have to research it and figure out what it means and then come here and explain it. And that's why a lesson takes 30 minutes when Jesus read it in one minute. And the people understood it clearly. So I'm going to give you a 30-minute version and hopefully when we get done we'll understand it a little bit like the people. Okay? So let's start at verse 1. Let's look at the Beatitudes. And seeing the multitudes. What multitudes? Well, what's the previous verse say? Great multitudes followed him. You see that in 425? Now they're following him. Seeing those multitudes, the crowd, if you will. He went up on a mountain. A place where he could be heard. They would be down maybe in the valley. And he moved up a little bit on uh, up the hill. So that he would have sort of a natural amphitheater. And then it says, When he was seated... His disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. Notice it says when he was seated, he, he uh, takes a position of authority. Now, we don't understand that when we just read the words when he was seated, but this was the posture of a rabbi. When a rabbi wanted to speak authoritatively, the rabbi sat down, and his disciples came and they sat at his feet. So this is a position of authority. He sits. Universities and colleges have endowed chairs. And supposedly the person who has the endowed chair can speak on that subject with authority. You've heard of the Pope who speaks ex cathedra. That means he speaks from the chair. That's what it literally means. He speaks from the chair. When the Pope speaks from his chair, ex-cathedra, it represents a 
an authoritative rule that every Catholic must follow. So when it says Jesus takes a seat, he is speaking with great authority and he expects the people to listen to what he has to say. Does that make sense? So he, here's what he says. And we come to the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Or, if it's an exclamation, it's, Oh, the blessedness of the poor in spirit. Now, what does it mean, poor in spirit? Well, the word here that's used poor, in Luke's gospel, he just says, Blessed are the poor. Then that in spirit. And the poor refers to people who are in abject poverty. 90% of the people who lived in the Roman Empire were in abject poverty. The average person made one penny a day. And that was just enough to feed yourself. And they were day laborers. They worked in the fields. If there was bad weather, they didn't eat that day. Not when the one penny took a meal. The question was, couldn't they have saved their money? Not if you only get enough money to, to eat for the day. If you eat today, then the next day, guess what? You don't have anything. So these are people who are poor. They're powerless. They are disenfranchised. Now, it says they're poor in spirit, in this case, because this is speaking of an attitude that these particular blessed poor people have. Not all people had the right attitude who were poor. If you were poor, you could survive even if you had bad weather and you didn't get paid that day. You'd go out and steal, couldn't you? You could beg. You could prostitute your body. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that you can make a living. Even though you're poor, you could link yourself up to a patron who would take care of you and then you would go around and talk about how great the patron was. You'd build up his ego. But uh, these poor are different. These are people who are poor and they are blessed because they have an attitude that's different than other poor people. Those who follow Jesus and are poor should have a different attitude. Their attitude is not one of pride. I'm just going to come up with some sort of scheme or I'm going to just get on welfare. What they say is I'm going to trust God meet my needs. That's a person who is poor and had the right kind of attitude. And uh, so they trust God. Now how does God meet those needs? Well, He can send manna down from heaven. He can do it supernaturally. Or He can work through His people. We talked a little bit about that last week. And today His people is the church. So this is one of the reasons that we should always have a ministry to the poor, especially people who turn to the church for help versus turning to other places for help. And now he gives us the reason why they are blessed. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice the word is. Not theirs will be in the future. Right now they are in possession of whatever this kingdom of heaven is, which means, I think, that, uh, that they are members right now of the kingdom of heaven. They belong, they are citizens right now of the kingdom of heaven. And therefore God takes care of their needs. This is the source of their blessedness. Now look at the second beatitude. It's found in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, 
let's think about how the Jews were thinking about this. We want to spiritualize this. We don't like to deal with things honestly as Christians. We want to spiritualize. Oh, they're mourning over their sin. No, it doesn't say. Is that what it says? Blessed are those who mourn. I like the Phillips translation in this case because I think it gives the, the gist of what it means. Philip says, blessed are those who know what sorrow means. Boy, I like that. Blessed are those who know what sorrow means. He's referring, now this is an exclamation. Oh, the blessedness of those who know what sorrow means. And so, uh, did Jesus face sorrow? Yes, Jesus faced sorrow. Did Jesus mourn? Yes, he mourned. He lost friends. He mourned. He wept over the graveside of Lazarus. He faced sorrows in his own life. And some of you know, as believers, what sorrow is. Because you've lost a spouse, maybe even recently, and you're still mourning over that. You lost a child, and you've never gotten over that. You have a friend who spurned you, and for some reason they're just not talking to you anymore. You don't even know why. And it's grieved you, your best friend. And so this is what uh, Jesus is talking about. In Luke's Beatitudes, he puts it this way. Blessed are those who weep. Somebody's broken hearted here. Blessed are those who grieve. Remember what Jesus said? He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and I've come to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the broken hearted, to set the captives free. It's exactly what he's talking about. So don't spiritualize this. You know, He's talking about people who mourn, people who have gone through suffering. Like the old song says, Nobody knows. You know what it says. I don't need to go with the rest of it. But George Smith will want to record that in some okay. so, Now look at the reason. The reason for the blessedness. For they shall be comforted. And notice, again, that's a passive verb. It's they shall be. Someone is comforted them, comforting them. Who's going to comfort them? Well, God can supernaturally comfort them, and He does that sometimes. Or He can do it through His people. And this is why we should be a loving class and a comforting class. We should be reaching out and wrapping our arms around those people who are going through suffering. Now look at the next beatitude found in verse 5. Oh, the blessedness of the meek, the humble. Uh, those who don't grasp for recognition. Those who are not self-promoters. Uh, those who don't try to get their own way and at the expense of other people. This is the opposite of being aggressive, the opposite of being self-willed. Uh, Jesus talked about the zealots who try to take the kingdom by force. That's the opposite of humility. We're going to take this kingdom. We're going to overthrow Rome. We're going to do it by force. Uh, we can do it. you know. And it's sort of a prideful spirit. Uh, Jesus is the perfect example of one who is meek. The scripture calls him meek. He uh, comes into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. He doesn't come in a white stallion proclaiming the kingdom of God. He says, I'm going to overthrow Rome. Watch this. He falls in the garden of Gethsemane. He says, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. That's a humble person. 
the person who's down on their knees, okay? So, and a person who's not always trying to promote themselves and get their own way. Now, why is this person blessed? Look at verse 5. For they shall inherit the earth. They shall inherit the earth. To inherit something is different than grasping something and getting it. Don't worry, God will take care of you. He will promote you. You don't have to promote yourself. He'll take care of all your needs. Now the next beatitude, beatitude number four, is found in verse six. Verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Oh, the blessedness. Oh, the sheer joy of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hungering and thirsting were realities in Bible times because people were poor. You could literally starve to death in Bible times. I haven't heard too many people in America starving to death. You see it in other parts of the world. So when we say hunger, as Americans, we don't know what it means. We don't really grasp the full impact of this. Or to thirst? To live out in the desert? Middle East desert? Not water. Not a lot of water out there. Those people knew what it meant to thirst. You get stuck out in that desert, guess what? You can die. There was a, a very liberal bishop named Bishop Pike a number of years ago. And he was tried for heresy. He wrote a lot of books. And he was involved in spiritualism and speaking to the dead. But he was very popular and wrote several best-selling books. And he decided he was going to go to Israel, and he was going out into the desert and do a spiritual retreat. Well, he never came back. And it took them weeks to find his body, and he finally crawled to some cave, but he died of, not starvation, he died of not having water. And so when it says hunger and thirst, you need to understand hunger and thirst the way people in Bible times, they didn't have a tap where they could turn on the faucet and get water like we do. We say, I'm thirsty, and we run to the kitchen glass of water. That's it. Usually it's filtered water or something like that. Uh, but blessed is that person who desires righteousness or goodness. Who desires goodness more than he desires food. Jesus fasting in the wilderness. Thirsty. Hungry. Forty days. Satan comes and says, Jesus wants to do what's right more than he wants the food. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So there is an example of hungering and thirsting for righteousness more than food itself, more than life itself. As a, as a deer pants after water, so my heart pants or longs after God. Now I think that David was very much like this. He desired to be good. And I like this because it says in verse 6, it doesn't say, oh, the blessedness of those who attain righteousness. Does it? Or, oh, the blessedness of those who are always good. If that were the case, none of us would be blessed. But blessed are those who desire that. That's their heart's desire. David was a man after God's own heart. There were times that he fell short, but guess what? It grieved him when he fell short. 
He wanted to do what was right in God's eyes, and that's why he would always come back and he would he would repent and he'd come back in, in sackcloth and ashes. So it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then the reason in verse 6, they shall be filled. One day, righteousness and goodness will fill the earth. They, what they desire indeed will be fulfilled. And of course, ultimately when God's kingdom comes upon the earth, that will happen as well. And then the next beatitude, beatitude number five, found in verse seven. Oh, the sheer joy, the blessedness of the merciful. The merciful are those who are, the word speaks of loving kindness, those who are compassionate, those who empathize, okay. uh, those whose heart breaks over the things that break God's heart. There, used to, there was a missionary who said, Lord, this was his prayer, he said, Lord, break my heart with the things that break your heart. And if we do that, then we are compassionate. Now, I want to show you something, and this is a verse that, it's only about 20 pages back in your Bible. It's in Micah. Okay? Just go from Matthew, just start moving backwards, and you'll, you'll find Micah, you'll find Habakkuk, and you'll find Nahum, and you'll find Micah. And when you get there, not too far, because if you know, go to Jose and all those books, you've gone too far. So, just go back and you'll find Micah, and when you get there, go to chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. And then, look at verse 8. If you, if you can't find it, just listen. Here's what it says. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Here it is. But to do justly, this is all He requires of you. You want to know what it means to be good? Here it is. Do what is just, but to do justly. To love, mercy, to be compassionate, and to walk humbly with your God. Does that sound anything like the Beatitudes? Good, righteousness, mercy, humble. Sounds just like the Beatitudes, doesn't it? The teaching that Jesus is giving isn't, isn't something that's new. This is what God's always required of his people. This is how he wants his people to live. This is what it means to be kingdom citizens. This is what it means to be children of God. That we love, we live this way among each other. So when you go back to the Beatitude, look what it says. In verse 7, it says, Blessed are the merciful. Oh, the blessedness of the merciful. And then it gives the reason why we're blessed. Because we shall obtain mercy. Uh, when will we obtain mercy? Well, it could be at the judgment. God will be merciful to us. Or guess what? When we're merciful toward other people and we're compassionate toward other people, we ourselves receive compassion. It's like, you know, whatever you give, you receive. It's a, maybe a reciprocal type of relationship. Now the next beatitude found in verse 8, beatitude number 6. Blessed are the pure in heart. This speaks of attitude. This is speaking to them of attitude. Remember the Old Testament, 
It says, who can enter the, the holy place? He that has clean hands and a what? Pure, Pure heart. Okay. So what we're dealing with is we're not dealing with outward things like you washed your hands, but it's speaking of something that's not only outward, not only your actions, but also what is inward. A pure heart speaks of right motives. It means single-heartedness, single-mindedness, not to be dual-minded, not to be a hypocrite. It's a difference of being two-faced. It's a difference between having a split mind. Instead, it's a, you have a single mind. You're pure of heart. Okay? You have the right motives. You don't do things with evil intentions. It all has to do with inward motives. You know, Jesus said, talking about adultery, he said, anyone who looks upon a woman with lust has committed adultery already where? In his heart. Notice, it's not looking upon a person. It's looking upon a person with the wrong motive, which is lust. And notice, it shows that your heart is not pure. You've already done something in your heart. So what we're talking about is your heart, your imaginations, your mind. We're to have a pure, pure motives for what we do. And then it says this, For they shall see God. Those who are pure at heart will see God. Now, Scripture says no one's seen God. God's Spirit. No one has ever seen God. Except the Beloved, John 1.18 says, who was with the Father before the world began. He has seen God, and He reveals God to us, but guess what? One day we're going to see God. I don't know how that's going to be, but about five different places in the Scriptures, it says we're going to see God. Remember Moses when he went up to get the Ten Commandments? It says in God's presence came, he had to turn his back because he couldn't look upon the glory of God lest he would die. We can't see God in our bodies. We, we drop dead just like that. But one day, I don't know what it means, but we're going to have the most glorious experience that we've ever had. We're going to see God as He really is. So I would say, oh, the blessedness of the pure in heart, wouldn't you? <laughs> if you're going to see God, what a thought that is. So then we come to the next beatitude. It's found in verse 9. Here's what it says. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now notice, it's not talking about the United Nations. <laughs> It's not talking about blessed are the peacekeepers. There's a difference between peacemakers and peacekeepers. Peacekeepers have rifles over their shoulders and are patrolling an area, making sure two factions stay away from each other. That's a peacekeeper. A peacemaker is one who is actively involved in reconciliation, not trying to keep two parties apart, and being a peacekeeper, but actually bringing two parties together and reconciling them in the church. Uh, in the synagogue, in uh, Jesus' day, person who works for peace, trying to reconcile people to God through evangelism so that they can have peace with God. And then they can have the peace of God with each other each other as a result of having the peace of God. Now this word peace was uh, 
very common in Jesus' day because the Roman Empire considered its greatest contribution to be what was known as the Pax Romana, which was Roman peace. And Rome had a motto, and it was called Peace and Security. It would come to a country and it says, we bring you peace. We're here to secure your borders. But the peace that they brought, and, they, and therefore many theologians and Bible teachers talk about, when Rome ruled the world, there was universal peace. Well, yes, but guess what? They weren't peacemakers. They were peacekeepers. They would, uh, their peace was produced by weapons, and by force, and by coercion. You know, with law and order. You know, if you didn't do this, we would do this. And so uh, that's a different kind of peace than that. That is a peace through force. This is a peace through reconciliation. It's peacemaking is the opposite of being a whoremonger. A peacemaker is the opposite of being a whoremonger. And it's different than being a peacekeeper. Does that make sense? So it's a person who's involved in reconciliation. And then it gives the reason. For they shall be called the sons of God. Well... Jesus was just called a son of God in chapter 3 when he was baptized. This is a royal title. This is a position of privilege. Uh, those who are peacemakers indeed are children of God. And one day it will be declared for all the world to hear who are children of God. Now the eighth beatitude found in verse 10. Blessed are those, or oh, the blessedness of the persecuted for righteousness' sake. Uh, for doing the right thing. Uh, because Rome was against the church and against Christianity and many in the synagogue were against Christ and against the Christians. There was persecution just for following Christ, just for doing the right thing. Rome required that when you went to a feast that you made a sacrifice to Caesar and lift up a cup to Caesar and pour out a libation to Caesar and Christians refused to do it. They said that's not right and they were persecuted just for doing the right thing. And guess what? Oh, the blessedness of being persecuted for doing the right thing. It's not that you get blessed when you do the right thing. Just doing the right thing is a sign of being blessed. So oh, the blessedness for being persecuted for the, not for the wrong thing. A lot of, let's say you go down the street, you go 90 miles an hour, and you get a ticket, guess what? You say, ah, they persecuted. They saw that Jesus sticker on the side. <laughs> you know, the one, you've heard of one where it says, the bumper sticker says, if you love Jesus, honk. <laughs> so the person starts honking in the back, honk, 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 and the Christian starts, what are you honking for? Screams at the person when they pass by. <laughs> uh, this is for doing the right thing. <laughs> and so when the state persecutes you, or people in the church persecute you, or you're persecuted at home because you're a Christian, and your spouse and your family's not a Christian, uh, that is a sign of blessedness. Okay. So the blessedness is only described for those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for doing that which is just not for living badly or doing something that is bad. And then the reason is, found at the end of verse 10, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now notice that Beatitudes in verse 3, the first Beatitude, ends with 
theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and the last beatitude ends the same way. So the phrase, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is the brackets around the beatitudes. So these are the eight beatitudes. Okay? Now, what Jesus does is he expands on the eighth one. He gives you a little bit more. He uses the word blessed, but not the way he uses it in the other verses. This time he doesn't say, oh, the blessedness. He doesn't say it that way. Look in verse 11. Notice the word are, A-R-E, blessed. Is that in italics now? No, there's a verb there now, isn't it? This is not another beatitude. He's now elaborating on the eighth beatitude. He's delineating, giving you some more information. Here's what he said. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Uh, I've read, I read 10 again. Blessed are those, blessed are you, verse 11, when, number one, they revile you. So if you want to know what it means to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, it involves three things. Number one, verse 11, when they revile you, they insult you, they throw names at you. Number two, and they persecute you, in this case means they oppose you. They take legal action against you. And three, they say all kinds of evil things against you falsely. They lie about you. It's exactly what happened to Jesus. They threw insult. Ah, you know, uh, at least we have a father. You know, we're not born of adultery, they said to Jesus in one place. And they uh, hurled insults at him. Hey, if you're a prophet, tell us who's hitting you. Bam, bam, bam. When they put a blindfold on these faces. Uh, they persecuted him. They uh, lied about him. They brought false witnesses in. Hey, we see that in the book of Acts, how the Sanhedrin brought false witnesses in to speak against the Christians who were just trying to do what was right. So this is an elaboration of what it means to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then he says this, verse 11, Blessed are you when, when they revile you, persecute you, say all evil things against you. Look at this. For my sake. For my sake. So if you want to know what righteousness sake is, it means because of Jesus. Because of our faithfulness to Jesus. And then finally he gives instructions. The last verse are instructions. Here's what you should do. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Hey, leap for joy when all these things happen. That's not what we do. We end up in jail. We go, oh no, what's going to happen to me? Everyone's forgotten me. Hey, if this happens, just leap for joy. Be jubilant. This is talking about unbridled joy. Why should we be jubilant? Look what it says. For great is your reward in heaven. Literally means great is your reward uh, in God's sight. It's reserved for you. It's, it's not that you're going to heaven. That's not your reward. This is talking about a reward that's been reserved for you. God has already reserved it. Same thing Peter says. An inheritance reserved in heaven. It's not that we're going to heaven that's our reward. Because here he says, earlier he said, the meek shall inherit what? The earth. But he's talking about great is your reward in God's sight. That's probably what he's saying. And it's already reserved for you. Your rewards are already uh, reserved for you. And then he says this at the end of verse 12. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When you follow Jesus, 
and you experience persecution, you are in a great line of people who have been persecuted in the past. Listen to this. The average Christian who gets persecuted for Jesus' sake is compared with a prophet in the Old Testament that got persecuted for righteousness. That's God's opinion of you. You're as good as a prophet. Oh, the blessedness of the person who follows the Lord. So, what he's saying is real disciples are blessed. You don't do these things in order to get blessed. You don't do these things in order to become disciples. You do these things because you're already blessed. This is the marks of a blessing. And so what we should be doing is we should be examining ourselves and say, hey, are the marks of a disciple on us? And if so, God's estimation is, oh, the blessedness of, and just put your name in there, because she is pure heart. Oh, the blessedness, and just put your name in there, because he shows mercy. Oh, the blessedness. See, and when you see that, what you this is how Jesus is describing what a kingdom citizen is like. A kingdom citizen is blessed. God has everything in control, and greater your rewards. We'll pick up at the rest of the sermon, verse 13, next week. Lord, we thank you for this passage. And we have a sense of what it means, and how the people who sat there understood it how they held on to every word as Jesus sat in a position of authority and taught. And then how some, like the apostles, took it to heart and even died for their faith. Persecuted. Martyred. Rather than deny Christ. Oh Lord, help us follow in this great endless line of prophets and disciples of Christ. And we continue that tradition on long into the future. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.